So my name is Jackie Robinson Ivy, and I get to have the distinct privilege of serving as chair of this wonderful club. And um, we take absolutely nothing for granted. And um, I'd said to Sylvia, I was a little disappointed that you know the room wasn't completely full because clearly this is a topic that everyone needs to hear about. Um, and based on the buzz that was going around, I listened at some of the tables. Um, this is quite the conversation. I learned a wealth of things. My dad used to tell me, "You learn when you learn something for the day, you can go home." I feel like I've, and he was totally joking because it never seemed to work out for me. But um, thank you to um, we have a couple of first timers here today. Those who are new to the club and have not visited City Club before, can you just wave your hand? Look at that. Dan, where is Omar? Omar takes memberships in case you all are interested, so that's why we're asking. Um, so thank you to our club CEO, Dan Gibbons, for pulling this together. He and his team do a wonderful job, and if you've ever had the opportunity to talk to him, his brain is generally thinking about the next thing when you talk to him. So um, he's paying close attention, but he's planning his next I am excited to hear more about what you all have to say about AI and Sylvia. I'm trying to give her a couple seconds to get together. Is going to no rush at all. Um, I will call the other people up, but she will then take over from here. So, uh, Jamira Alexander from Public, Public, Public Narrative, Marianne McMullen from University of Chicago, Chapin Hall, and John Powell. Sylvia, it's yours. I'll be back in a little bit. Okay. I'm so excited because you're the right people at the right place at the right time. That's always how it works out. So not too worried about quantity, really excited about quality. And I'm taking pictures left and right. I've got my young Instagram friend over there who's taught me everything. John, look over here. Okay, one, two, three, yay, look at us. Okay, there we go. Um, we are pumped and we're going to get started. Whoa! This is, first of all, an accessible conversation because this can be intimidating. And in our pre-conversations, John, Amanda, the team, take all of this so seriously. We talked a lot about our goals and what we hope you'll leave here with, which is better understanding of how AI impacts civic life, knowing that it comes from different angles. Um, the whole Screen Actors Guild and SAG-AFTRA uh, strike had this at its core, but it's being used differently and for good purposes in other spaces. So first, who the heck are we? I think you uh, saw in all of our outreach, but I'll just say that I'm joined by my good friend, and I do mean that, Jamira Alexander. I mean, come to your house, girlfriend. Um, <laughs> she is a resource as the CEO and president of Public Narrative. Not going to read her whole bio, but you need to know her. Her work brings that intersection of nonprofits and journalism together for civic good. Smartest woman I know, Marianne McMullen from Chapin Hall. We go way back to SEIU days. 
uh, somebody named Barack Obama took her to Washington. Whatever, whatever. <laughs> She's got a lot to say um, as well. And John Powell, a newer friend, we met at the executive club, and I'm like, we've got to take him to the city club. And he's got a lot of information to share from a global perspective. And, of course, yep, I'm Eve Ewing's mom to the CTU people here, <laughs> Sylvia Ewing. So, um, yeah, yeah, give, give us all a round of applause. So... I'm going to start with questions for these guys, and that will include questions that some of you sent in advance, and um, the City Club is really good about taking those questions, so participate. And then you've got cards on your table, hold your cards up, the team will come and take them, and we'll try to get to them as well. So that's our agreement. Is that all right? Cool beans. So I'm going to just go, I'm going to start on this end with how you're applying AI in your work. And, um, well, actually, no, I'm going to do a question from Mike Nellis from Authentic. In his opinion, or he wanted to know, in your opinion, what are the key ethical considerations that civic leaders should keep in mind when implementing AI-driven solutions. And I know Michelle Boone is here from the uh, Poetry Foundation. We've got folks from the Library Foundation, all kinds of folks who want to know. So I'm going to start actually with Jamira, ethical considerations. Sure, sure. I would say um, the key, some of the key ethical considerations in integrating AI would include considering your mission or the objective of the work that you do. Um, what is the reach to your audience? How has your organization managed to remain relevant? And as we've gone through various ebbs and flows with technology, what has that process been like? What have been some of the advantages and disadvantages to integrating different technologies along the way? And also thinking about the readiness of your organization, the readiness of your audience, and then ultimately the readiness of your supporters. They can, it can, it, we have a responsibility of setting the pace, but we can't set the pace according to what's trending or what's popular. We have to set the pace and, and ensure that our audiences can keep up with us. Thank you, Jamira. Same thing for you, Marianne. I think on, on ethics, when it comes to public administration, the, the privacy of data, when you're using the data AI functions and the large language models, whatever you put in them becomes public Knowledge. So if you're doing data analysis and you throw a bunch of census data in there that's public, that's fine. But you don't take your child welfare data roles with identified data or your Chicago public school student uh, identified data and put it in any public site at all, any kind of public AI site. You have to create a closed system of your own. So I think that's the, the main guardrail public institutions are talking about right now is like training staff that you might start playing with this stuff, but do not put private or identified information of, of citizens on there. Thank you. John Powell? Thanks. And, and just for, <clears throat> excuse me, for context, um, I, I came from Salesforce uh, in, a, in a global role, as, uh, as, as was said. And I, I think there's a lot of resources that I can provide to folks after the fact, uh, if you'd like. I think one thing Salesforce has done a nice job of is outlining principles around governance, like how do I get started? Mm -hmm. um, so beyond the basic questions of like, do I think 
a generative AI tool can actually help me? What are the ways, as an organization, centrally we could set up structures to make sure that we're you know, not fouling publicly or private information that shouldn't be made available public? How do we make sure our data are not being retained by models, et cetera? And so, um, so I'll just say at Salesforce, just a couple examples I'll outline. Um, we created a governance structure very early on, more than a year ago, uh, an internal counsel, ethical and legal counsel. So in effect, if you wanted to use a generative AI tool for your job, you essentially put yourself through this process where you kind of gave the business justification, what the outcomes you expect to be are, what model you're going to use. And then it would go through uh, kind of that governance structure that we had set up before kind of giving you the keys to start using a generative AI tool. So I think that's just one manifestation of it, but uh, totally agree with the other comments made here that, you know, you need to really interrogate the ways in which you're going to be using the model and, and use you know, best available information to avoid um, data getting in the wrong hands, et cetera. And that uh, internal collaboration is really key. I've got a couple of colleagues from Elevate here who I had to go to. I'm using this thing, a chat thing, tech services, IT, can I do it? It was before AI was such a buzzword, um, but thank you for letting me do it. I'd like to come to Marianne first about how you're applying AI in your work, um, how and why, and how it impacts civic life. So I think the most effective way we've been applying it so far is for writing, actually. Um, we're a re- Chapin Hall is a research center. We focus on child and family well-being, and we develop policy recommendations. But our research reports, anytime there's a review, the, uh, a survey of policymakers and influencers, and you ask them what are the most reliable sources of information, New York Times, Twitter, research, research is always like way up, right? It's like that's the most reliable source of information. But when you ask how accessible is that information, it's like way down. It's like, yeah, they're not going to read a 50 or 90 page research report somebody on on Capitol Hill you can take that 50 page research report and attach it to Claude AI or ChatGPT and ask it for a one page policy brief I'll give you a specific example I took three reports on preventing youth homelessness and I attached it to Claude AI and I said give me a one page policy brief for the Chicago City Council with these subheads the issue the evidence and recommendations it did an amazing job it wasn't perfect. It left out a few things that I would have wanted to include that had a little bit more emotional impact. But it was an incredible first draft that saved me hours of reviewing the work. So getting, for me as the communication director, getting our researchers and policy staff, helping them produce one-pagers and two-pagers that will actually be read, that's been the biggest leap for me and the biggest connection to public policy. Mm-hmm. Sure. So Public Narrative, uh, we're celebrating our 35th year this year and formerly Community Media Workshop. Um, the organization in its heyday. But our, our vision has always remained clear to build trust between the public and, um, and media and the press. And so top of mind for us is how do we maintain equity of voice in this process? And so, you know, 
throughout the pandemic, we were looking for ways to remain connected to our audience. And we were connected to a group out of MIT that developed this software that allowed for us to um, translate our community focus groups, our virtual focus groups, and really synthesize multiple conversations to then sync it down to one conversation. Mm -hmm. And from there, we've managed to develop programs. We've managed to develop reports that would ultimately help connect with our community even now that we're in a hybrid um, environment. And so I, I look to ways to keep that type of engagement going. It's, uh, it's not intimidating. It's not, um, it's not intrusive at all. And it's, it's exciting to see that though we're in multiple Zoom rooms or multiple rooms having a conversation, there's so much that we're speaking alike that ultimately it, it draws unlikely thought partners. I love it. John? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll give an example that I love to tell. So, so in my in my role at uh, Salesforce, my job was to meet with uh, executive leaders at the world's biggest companies uh, that were leading sustainability programs and show up as a resource to help them. And so, normally as part of that process, I would go in to publicly publish reports from that company. What it, what was their environmental performance last year? What was their carbon footprint based on what's called a CDP report? And in total, this might be 1,000, 1,500 pages. This is kind of a variant of Marianne's example. And that might make, take me three or four days as an experienced professional to really sift through and kind of create a point of view on where they need to go next. That was, again, the, the job that I was uh, had to carry out. And so after some time and really digging deep into a couple different generative AI tools over the course of months, I reduced that period to about like 30 minutes to kind of get my initial point of view put together. Now, again, that's this combination of like deeply expert perspective and also like working with generative AI tools. And that's kind of like a rule I think everyone should walk away with if you're like early in using generative AI tools. Like the likelihood of being like replaced as someone who's an expert in whatever your field is, uh, you know, is pretty low for the foreseeable future based on what most kind of researchers on generative AI say. Um, But in order to really know how you might specifically benefit from it, like you have to spend time with a generative AI tool, like, and I'm talking like 100 plus hours, uh, so you can really understand how they behave, because they're weird, they're super weird, and they're unpredictable, and that's kind of the idea, but, but, but again, I tend to be an optimist on the side of it, and I've, again, personally seen it benefit my work in, in massive ways, scaling what I could do by, you know, factor of 20 in just a few short months. A hundred plus hours, I could hear the teachers going, oh my God, <laughs> oh my God. Uh, but there are efficiencies that can be achieved. And let's stick with how to get started. What is the first logical, uh, Sylvia's rule, first do no harm, step that one can take to get started? What's the m- most productive intentional first step. And I'll stick with you, John. Okay, so show of hands, who has at least a free, like, ChatGPT account or uses Bing? Like, just, who's done it, like, at least one time? Okay. So, for those that didn't raise your hand, at least take that as a first step. And again, you can just start using Bing without signing up for anything, and you'll see a little bit um, of that. That's that's step one. And then step two, I think, is just a very intentional um, experimentation on your own. And it doesn't have to be work-related per se, although it, although it can help. Uh, usual guidelines about not using work information when you shouldn't, give it to a Gen AI tool. But, um, but again, like that, that to me is like 
table stakes to like really have an opinion on it because we can all hear these little things and see great stuff and see weird hallucinations but until you've actually like really spent time with it you don't have a as complete of an understanding so i think those are the two very easy logical next steps it's just 100 hours we have 8,700 hours in a year so just 100 yeah my calendar is not my friend but if you use grammarly like we've been using that kind of stuff for years right not so scary marianne for you what's the first intentional step so I, I really like that. I think that, that makes sense, to get get in there and experiment. Play with it. Ask it to do goofy things. I was before here, I was looking for something fun, and I asked it to write a version of Sweet Home Chicago just talking about Chicago's sports teams, for example. Claude AI said, no, there's copyright infringement there. And Chat GPT said, sure, I'll give it a try. <laughs> but as you experiment and play with it, um, you'll learn a few things, and the main thing you learn about any large language model is it's not intelligent. It is not creating intelligence. It is creating language. Mm-hmm. And what you give it, how you craft your prompt, and what information you give it to work with will determine what you get out of it. Um, Michael Cohn, um, uh, Trump's fixer, file former fixer, <laughs> filed a uh, legal brief just last year in federal court, and it had completely invented legal cases in it because he used ChatGPT to do this. It's not the first career mistake the man has made. (laughs) (laughs) And I suspect it's not his last, but that's the sort of thing that can happen. If you just use the systems and let it look anywhere for information, it will, what they call, hallucinate, but it's just making Mm -hmm. stuff up. It just fills in the blank. It's really weird. So I would just, like, put that out there as a caution, but experiment, and you'll see it do that. Ask it to write a profile of you, Mm. a bio of you, and see what a crazy story it tells. So. I love it. And Jamira? I would, I would advise to start with the apps that you're presently using, right? Many of them are integrating AI tools, even in them. Zoom. I know my retirement account is like working with Google to create some different functions and things. Um, and, and LinkedIn. LinkedIn has an option if you want to take your caption and utilize the AI function. Um, now, me, I typically am married to my captions once I've written them, so I didn't love it. Um, <laughs> but, but I was able to even sit with that. What about it didn't I love? And to your point, Marianne, it removes some of that emotion that came with the storytelling of um, even posting online, but being mindful of that and just being able to, because I've approached it with a great measure of skepticism, like, are we going to be removing some of the personality from what we're doing? And I've allowed my skepticism to shift to my checklist, you know, and, and allow my research, my questions to be fueled by that skepticism and allow the research to help inform what, it, what might be a sound strategy for integrating AI and for staying connected to our audiences. I love it. And we said an approachable conversation mm-hmm. to find your, your space here uh, without fear, with respect, making it accessible But there are so many uh, instances in our world where we have unintended consequences. Now, a lot of y'all are involved with and excited by legal cannabis now. That growth, that industry, and I don't see anybody nodding, well, I didn't take any gummies or anything. (laughs) Let me just say, 
an unintended consequence is the commercial farming is depleting the water table, and you know it's it's just an unintended consequence. Um, we're not all talking about it in such uh, glowing terms anymore, but cryptocurrency, the the cooling that is needed for the computers to run that again. The work that we're doing um, on the climate is being um, harmed by these newfound, you know, tools. So I'm just curious about um, potential rebound effects for generative AI and examples when it can, um, you know, again, be labor intensive. But what are some of the unintended consequences and, and again, that rebound effect? I'll start with you, John. Sure. It's, uh, it's a really good question. And I think I have an encouraging message, you know, having uh, been with a large tech companies that works with a lot of other large technology companies, we're at least at the point when there's like new innovations happening, like concurrent with that is the question of what is the carbon intensity, what's the water intensity, et cetera. What I can tell you in, in brief terms, each model is a little bit different. So Llama differs from Claude, differs from ChatGPT for a variety of reasons. Um, um, but, there, uh, but, but the point is, like, there is a carbon impact, period. Like, it's a lot of energy to run the servers that you know, work with these large uh, language models. Um, I think another thing to consider is like the like kind of the hard infrastructure that's also going into place. And so Judy with Siemens over there, we were talking uh, how they kind of fit in the generative AI equation, helping to build out the new data centers that are powering um, the equipment. Right? Um, I've worked with Nvidia that's like building a lot of the chips that are allowing that to happen. And so the good news is all up and down this value chain, um, there are already like deep sustainability commitments, and this is just getting woven in. And work is being done to kind of decarbonize or lower that uh, impact. And it's an open debate argument. Some are saying that, you know, at full build-out with tons of use of generative AI, that might have 5 to 10% of the globe's carbon footprint. But then there's other arguments to be made that says, well, the performance improvements we get from the grid harnessed, harnessing generative AI might result in a 10 or 30% improvement in climate outcomes. So I don't think it's an either-or, but the good news is I think there's smart people working on it and uh, things are a lot more transparent in terms of what those outcomes are. So it's early days, but uh, it's good to keep an eye on. It's something to be mindful of because the climate crisis is coming for all of us, but Mm -hmm. we've got some responses. Um, Not so much on the environment, but just on unintended impact um, and also making it less labor-intensive. I'll start with you, Mm -hmm. Jamira. Um... I have to say, like, look to the past. You know, um, we were here before, and and now I was in probably like in high school or something, where you know there's talks of us doing business from our emails, and folks are like, how in the world are we ever going to do business from our emails? <laughs> and here we are. So really looking at looking at how we've adjusted through time. I think I, I think often about how. Um, disconnects happen, and oftentimes they happen because, and I know we'll talk a little bit more about how this impacts students, but 
there's something for us to learn from each other. These children, they come out of the womb learning how to use a tablet before they learn to tie their shoes. It's amazing, right? But being able to really look to what will, what will we miss in making this integration? Um, there are things that we'll miss socially. There are things that we may miss ethically and morally. But how do we translate that in how we handle this technology? And I'll give, you, I'll give an example. In a former life, I worked for Job Corps, and I was a career placement specialist. And I had students who were fascinated by social media, and they had uh, email addresses like sweetbaby16 at yahoo.com, and they think they're <laughs> going to get hired. And I'm like, it doesn't quite work like that. This is how you want to navigate this measure of your professionalism, this measure of your social presence, so that you protect a part of your personal life. And so I think that we have to go into this with that same measure of Mm -hmm. precaution to understand that there are great things that could come of integrating this technology. Um, I look to to the UK who are, you know, they're slight criticism of America. So we tend to be more (laughs) reactive than we are proactive. So we get excited about the the hot topic of the day and then we go back to make the create the regulation to protect everyone all of a sudden. Well the UK is doing the opposite and I think we can learn a lot from them as it relates to regulation around AI, which is why they can't retain top talent because the top talent can't just run freely and create those things. So there's a lot to learn in, in what this process looks like, but I think that Um, we can take a lot of pages out of the transition of technology through the years, social media, um, things that FCC, I remember first getting, I'm going to pass it on, I promise. But I remember um, in college when Facebook was only for college students, and now all of a sudden my mother Grandma, it's grandma. (laughs) My mom can have a page. And now what do I do with this? Because I'm certainly not going to post what I was posting in college now that my mother can see it, right? And I'm certainly not going to um, look to see that my songs that I'm posting with my posts are going to remain because now I don't have the rights to them. But they didn't care about that 10 years ago. So just in thinking about the advancements that are happening across the board in the technology but also in the regulation and being able to navigate our audiences through that. If you can tell, I'm like really audience-centered because that is what helps our organization sustain. And I think that we as leaders have a very sure accountability to those audiences when we introduce them. They trust us. They, they, we have a measure of credibility and believability in what we bring before them. And, you know, it's really, it's really um, important for us to really lean into that as we help to move uh, these generations forward. Well, and Marianne, you've got a lot of examples of how you have found efficiencies, both in um, both social work, dealing with uh, politicians. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit more about how you're using it. And for those who missed it, it went by fast. We learned a lot about large language modules at conferences that we've attended. Right. Explain what that is for those who may. Who knows what an LLM is? Okay, like some. Y'all cool. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, large, we're, you can build your own large language model, and that's actually what I've been working on for the last week. As I told Sylvia, my talking points change every day. Um, chat GPT-4, which you pay to subscribe to, allows you to build your own chat GPT. 
So we're taking every single research and policy report that we've written over the last 10 years. We're taking all our about language from our website, our language bank, all our press releases. We're putting it all in this thing, and it's not taking very long to do it. And then we can just ask that large language model, I'm calling it a small language model, um, to answer questions. Then we know it's completely protected work, what we're going to get from it, and it allows us to use our work a lot better. So we're going we're gonna to have a naming competition for this uh, platform to just raise the whole organization's awareness that it's there. But I'm just, I'm really excited about that. But an example outside of large language models of how we're using this in social work, there's a model called motivational interviewing in social work, which is where say a, a children's prote- child protective services social worker sits down with a family and instead of that social worker telling them here's what you have to do they ask them what do you want for your family what are your goals and they just go by what the family wants because if you set your own goals you're much more likely to reach them and it is a very evidence informed practice motivational interviewing there is a app called listen l y s s n that when the social worker sits down with the family member, they turn on the app that listen listens to the entire interview, and then as soon as it's over, as soon as the client leaves the office, that social worker sees a complete assessment of how much they held to the model and where they kept fidelity and where they did not. Mm-hmm. So they right away get input on how good they were, and it lets us know if we're implementing the model in like 27 states in the country, it really lets us know if we're really implementing the model. Because you know how these programs go sometimes. Oh, yeah, we're doing what they did. Well, not really if nobody's really watching. So that's an example of an application and how they're using it to make sure public services are better delivered. I love it. I love it. We're going to come to you shortly. Make sure I see some questions. Um, So we'll put Dan to work here. We'll start to gather them from the audience. But um, this is a question from Deneen Pilar from Teach One Wellness. And this was more of an accessibility question. Um, How can community leaders on the south and west side, black and brown communities, and I'll say the southeast side, you know, uh, as well, communities that have been traditionally underserved connect uh, this information to businesses and schools so they're not left behind. Uh, I'm going to ask you for some free resources or resources, and then I'll come to Jameer. Sure. You know, I'll kind of echo the point that I made before. I think, um, and, and kind of underpinning my assessment that, like, the way to get started is, like, start using models, is that they aren't going away. And, in fact, researchers that are, like, super deep into, like, what models, what the large language models can currently do, if they were all to get shut down tomorrow, um, the ones that are out there still exist, right, and can be used. And, in fact, we probably won't realize their full scope and benefit for multiple years. And so, as it relates, like, I'm sure there's multiple mechanisms, but, like, anything that can show... You know, kids, folks of various ages, like what might the best practices be so you can effectively use, uh, you know, a generative AI tool. Like that, that's where I would start. So my, my friend at the public library, we were just talking about that at lunch. Like that to me, I mean, what a wonderful program to have uh, as an example to like show kids how to use ChatGPT. What's effective prompting? How do you, you know, avoid negative consequences? So you could really see it fitting in uh, well there. So that's but one idea, but there's a lot, a lot needed. But again, they're not going away. And the like head in the sand posture like is not working. So we as humans need to figure out how to like coexist with uh, our generative AI friends. A new idea for you media. 
Jamira? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with businesses. You know, oftentimes uh, business owners are chief everything officers, right? So whatever hats they need to wear at whatever time, you know, that's where they have to devote their attention. Um, I would go so far as to say looking at what task might they delegate. Maybe they would delegate to a person if they had the resource, but what might they be able to take off their plates? And I, to Dan's point about, or not Dan, I'm sorry, to John's point about the 100 hours, um, using that research to understand like what is out there that could possibly help to um, alleviate some of the weight of their responsibility as a business owner. Um, I think mm-hmm. it comes back to, particularly, and Marianne, perhaps you can like give us some guidance around this, in understanding like as the as you discover different functions of apps, how might you create your own system for implementing um, your work accordingly? And then you know for 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 schools and um, our communities on the south and west side, southeast sides, also thinking about like in our program and service delivery, what layers could we could we add to some of that um, to some of that work that AI functions functions can support us with? Listen, of course, being one of those, but what other elements? might we be able to um, incorporate. Um, I'm a firm believer in focus groups and surveys and just really understand like what is the competency, what is the understanding of your audience presently, and then going back to um, thinking about like what apps students use in school already. Like there are tools and functions that are being incorporated in some of those that, you know, our programs and our, our organizations could really lean to to help support the schools in how they're approaching it. Well and school is connected. I'm gonna pull together two questions. This was sent in advance by Mary Cruz Gallardo from the Brinson Foundation, tied with something from uh, Jill Stewart from Stewart Communications. So part of it is how can we encourage AI development that supports uh, users learning with AI rather than development that produces more things to consume? Um, so less products, more information. And the second, so how do we build AI literacy? We've talked, touched on that a little bit. The second part is what's the impact on education? We've all heard about the possible misuse um, you know, students getting AI to do their homework. Um, <laughs> M- Michelle Boone and I talked about what happens if AI submits a poem to the Poetry Foundation, but so uh, to Poetry Magazine. So, how do we build more literacy? And are there concerns around school? And I'm going to start with you, Marianne. So, it's just with this question and the last, you know, just think of the three most equalizing institutions that we have to work with, the public schools, the public libraries, and the public parks. You know, I mean, just thinking about digital camps and uh, just even, even like drama clubs and uh, social clubs at school using AI to do more creative things. I mean, there's just so many ways to apply it, but you have to start with the assumption that to close the digital divide, you have to have those programs and those activities. I mean, I think the library is like perfect to supplement because the schools have plenty to do already. But if it can be incorporated into schools, if it can be incorporated into digital summer camps as part of the summer programs for youth, I think that would be fantastic. And then I don't know who's policing because students, maybe how do you turn an opportunity to cheat into an opportunity to learn? Mm -hmm. It's a never ending um, I had my students at Columbia, and there's somebody that will think of a way. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take a, a question from uh, Gabriel Lyon from Illinois Humanity. I'm on their board. That's not why I took the question first. I'm just saying. Um, 
how could slash should the government or the city of Chicago be using AI and how should it not be using AI? If you have a question, last call to start to raise your hand, someone will pick it up. I would say, so I'm a follower of uh, city initiatives, right? And we're introduced every few years, every couple mayors to different initiatives. And I think that in the creation of those initiatives, perhaps that AI should be used to figure out even if, uh, um, even if an, an initiative is going to dissolve and something else is coming, to really figure out how to leverage that transition. I think, and that could be something that is continual. Um, one of the things that we learn from community members is just this nauseam that comes with getting accustomed to a program and then ultimately the program either goes without resources, it's uh, dis- dismantled, dissolved for whatever reason. And so I think that AI could very well be, especially with Google being here, could very well be a tool that Chicago could use to keep that transition and that continuity across initiatives regardless of what um, those transitions look like, you know, historically. You heard that here at the City Club first, people. (laughs) How should we not use it? I got a pro rather than a con, if I can throw that Please, please. So um, there's a Chicago-based company called Truleo. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of it, but they have developed an app to assess police body cam, cam body cam footage because there's tens of thousands of hours of it and no one's looking at it. It just exists, right, in these databases. It's only pulled out if there's a homicide or something or if a cop kills somebody. Well, this app can go through thousands of hours of footage, of course, very quickly, and look for triggers or signs that could lead to bad police behavior, things like, interrupting the citizen that they're interacting with, using profanity, um, giving commands, not introducing themselves, not saying what they're doing. There's all these things that if a cop is engaging in these three behaviors, it's very likely things are going to go really bad at some point in the future. I think this is amazing. I just saw a story about it. I just read it last night for the first time. And then I Google, if you Google Truleo, there's a nice CNN episode uh, where the reporter's driving around with the police officer. But I think there's incredible potential. There's at least a half dozen police forces already using it for police oversight. Um, and I just think this has incredible potential and Chicago could use it. Very good. How not to use it or how to use it. I'll give you an option. <laughs> well, I... I think this applies not only to a government like the city of Chicago, but co- companies and other municipalities. Like, I would just say at a minimum, like, put in guardrails to make sure that the most sensitive and important information does not go into a, uh, a generative AI tool. I think that's about as far as you can go right now. And in fact, there's some really good literature that I quite believe in, which is that the traditional like, centralized model of rolling out a technology like a generative AI is very poorly done and is a misfit for large organizations because it's highly, highly individual. And so like the example is that, you know, let's say a CEO of a thousand person company says, we're, we're going to use generative AI, you know, for everything. And they might have some initial hunches that might be on the mark, but ultimately it's like, it comes down to like the job to be done by the individual. And that isn't something that's easily centralized, such as like picking an email provider or picking a like communications provider for your company. It's just very weird and just very, very different by nature. So the whole idea of this like top-down governance in the ways that you know municipalities or companies might work like it, it doesn't really 
fit that well. And I've, I've got a couple articles. If you're really interested in digging in, um, there, there's some pretty compelling cases for a kind of a bottoms-up way of going about it. Um, well, and I'll just add that the privacy angle is still really uh, critical. Mm-hmm. Conversations with folks from the U.K. who are now being recruited over here. Mm-hmm. Where We have an um, opt You've been opted in without knowing it, and you have to unsubscribe. Mm-hmm. And their model is permission first, mm-hmm. and then you. Um, so you're asked before you're added to a lot of lists. So I think that that's a caution for governments, for organizations, adding names and information, even if you're very well intended. Um, information is worth money. And I was going to tease John about this commercial. Uh, I, I have to do it before I come to a couple more questions. I really didn't understand the Matthew McConaughey um, commercial that I've seen during all of my sports watching. But I think the bottom line message is that your information, your data is valuable. Yeah, completely. So if you haven't seen it, Matthew McConaughey, who's paid very handsomely by Salesforce to be a representative, is sort of in the Old West scene, and he's like, do you trust your AI? Who do you trust? Type of thing. But but yeah, the, the whole idea is that for, for large organizations that do have uh, proprietary data, sensitive data, there are systems and structures you can incorporate to make sure that that doesn't go outside the boundaries of your organization. So that, as a CRM provider, that's what sales, Salesforce has a product that allows you to do that. But um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, it, it, it again comes down to this idea of like, we need to exert some sort of control over where our information and data shows up. So go back to your City of Chicago question. It's it's you could see it being a very slippery slope if we don't have governance in place to make sure that citizen information or or sensitive budget information, whatever the case might be, doesn't get into a model that could be used to train elsewhere or could just somehow show up uh, somewhere else. You know, those of us that have deeply read the terms and conditions of every software we've ever used, <laughs> raise your. <laughs> And it doesn't work if you have ChatGPT summarize it for you. You still got to do the work. Um, so, so, so again, per, you know, proceed with caution when when rolling things out at, at very large scales, for sure. So uh, Tamara Mahal from NAMI Chicago asks: As AI introduces efficiencies at work, how do you handle staff anxieties about job security? What should investment in staff training on AI look like? That's a great question, and I know. Marianne, anything we're thinking about, Marianne thought about it last week or yesterday. (laughs) But I remember having a conversation with you, and I think maybe Gabe, too, like about what you're saying to your staff. So take that on. Yeah, I I would say that uh, in communications, AI doesn't threaten your job, but somebody who knows how to use AI threatens your job. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just just a new tool, and you have to know how to use it to to move forward. And, you know, the anxiety issue is real. And that one, I I don't know, you know, we were talking at the table that people are either excited or terrified or somewhere on that continuum, right, when it comes to AI. Um, so, So addressing that with staff, but in terms of their personal job, you know, just trying to help explain how it can help them do their job better, how it can be an asset to them in their work. In communications, it's kind of a no-brainer, right? There's so many shortcuts that it provides 
If, you, if your work is, if you got 100% of your work, instead of starting at 0%, you're starting at 50%. It's really, really helpful in writing. And a lot of people are very uncomfortable with writing. I work with all these PhDs who are really uncomfortable with writing, oddly enough. But if they, have, uh, they use some of these tools, it can help them get a head start on writing with their writing. And it also is dependent on fields. Again, I mentioned the uh, sag after folks. Um, people who are creatives have a little more anxiety, but things are coming. Mm-hmm. How do we adapt and adjust? This is just the first conversation to make it accessible. So Jennifer Amder Spitz from Amder Spitz Associates talks about um, confidentiality. I think we touched on this a little bit. But one aspect that we didn't um, mention is are there apps that can help with making things more uh, confidential uh, or to create a closed system and are they easy to use? I I can hit a couple of points. So it's not lost on me that there's just a dizzying array of like AI tools that are out there. So there's sort of these foundational models that like the chat GPTs, et cetera, but then there's thousands and thousands of companies sprouting up every day that are kind of creating a wrapper around those foundational models. And so I think the thing to look out for is is actually quite literally, bef- before you start seriously using a tool, especially for work, uh, is to understand what is like the data retention policy and what is the data uh, training policy. So in other words, are the things I'm asking going to be used, put in a corpus of information that will train the model to get better? So that's one consideration. But then another one is data retention. So when I'm sending information and data, uploads of PDFs and spreadsheets, where does that live? How long does it live there for? Do I have power and agency to have it removed? When does that happen? So uh, it sounds like a lot of things, but but again, I think for, for like a work type situation, uh, it's, it's, it's a really critical first step. As for like apps to help you do that, I'm not really sure. I, I would tend to trust... Um, well-documented open source models or some of the larger, more well-moneyed uh, AI systems and LLMs, just because those are the ones that are probably going to survive over the course of years. Um, so that's that's maybe an initial recommendation I would give. I love um, where we've gone. This has, to me, been a thoughtful conversation. Give them a round of applause if you agree. <laughs> or a couple snaps if you're cool. Um, We're going to start to wrap up. I think we got to the questions in the room. We got to the questions in advance. We've given you things to be excited about, hopefully reduced fear, as well as more things to continue to learn. I want to give our great panel an opportunity to close, and I'd like to do it with, um, even though this is the start of this conversation about a quickly evolving part of our world. What predictions and headlines would you offer or leave us with? Um, And, you know, you can tell us the time frame for that headline, but, you know, what do you want to see and what would it be? Ooh, I'll I'll bite. Um, Okay, so a headline I would love to see, let's say, what's today, the 6th, February 6th, 2025, is that sustainability teams that are small and mighty all over the world supercharge their impact in part thanks to their use of generative AI tools. Ooh, I like That's what that. I would love to see. Give it a round of applause for that. Thank you, John Powell. 
Okay, I'm a former journalist, so I wrote down a couple headlines. Yes, please. <laughs> Nonprofits find LLMs increase productivity and influence is one. And the other is social service providers find AI improves program effectiveness. Love it. Good news. So a headline I would love to see, um, AI helps to improve transparency in local, state, and federal government. Ooh. (laughs) Very good. I'll leave you with a headline. The City Club once again delivered a conversation that helped make Chicago, best city in the world, stronger, better, and more connected. So hopefully you agree. With that, I'd uh, like to hit my post. I think I might be three minutes early, but I'm going to turn it over to John. John, turn it over to Dan. Dan and John, two guys that we're just mixing up, we're going to say. Thank you, Sylvia. That was uh, incredible. Thank you for bringing this uh, to us. Uh, I I believe it's going to be the first of many conversations, right? So um, thank you, Jamara. Thank you, Marianne. Um, Of course, Sylvia and, and John. Uh, incredible panel. I, my wheels were turning. I already have an idea of City Clubs. Uh, the most successful club in Chicago with an incredibly deep archive of footage. Um, perhaps we can create a uh, large language model, maybe maybe in conjunction with, with Chapin Hill. Right, we'll see. Um, to make that content that much more accessible, right? And, and all the knowledge of these incredible folks that you see on the stage now and so many others that you've seen before, Brenda, Sylvia, or I'm, I'm sorry, Gabe, that you're going to be seeing soon. Uh, we have so much of this footage, and how great would it be to make that more accessible to people out there who have questions about the civic world of, of Chicago and how to become more engaged. So looking forward uh, to that and uh, looking forward to having you all back here at City Club. We've got some great programs coming up. We've got the, the Tanisha, the, uh, the Foreign Minister and, and Prime, Deputy Prime Minister of Ireland, coming on, on Thursday, actually. A few more seats for that if anyone's interested. And he's going to be talking about some global affairs uh, and, I believe, artificial intelligence that's coming out of, um, about, out of Ireland's um, tech scene. Um, and then also the humanities impact um, with the chair of the NEH coming in from Washington, D.C., thanks to uh, Illinois Humanities and, and Gabe Lyon. That's on February 14th, so spend your Valentine's Day lunch uh, here with us at the City Club. Um, there is so much more to come. That's just a sampling. And, and like I said, because of people like Sylvia and because of people like Gabe, we have these incredible ideas where we're here in the room where it happens, sharing these ideas. Maybe something comes, with the, comes out of this. Uh, with your conversation about public libraries, um, you know maybe we get some more corporate partners like Siemens more involved in these in these solutions. That's what happens here. So we welcome you all back regularly, often. Please come back. Please share your ideas. And thank you again to for to all of these panels for an incredible conversation. Thank Thanks. Thank you guys. <laughs>